Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. I did something very interesting this morning. I went to an eighth grade. I just moved back to New Jersey. I went to an eighth grade, uh, like a career fair, I guess. Not their eighth grade, but they were walking around. And I got to talk to a bunch of eighth graders about, you know, doing doing the internet radio and the podcast and, and doing comedy. And it was really great because I don't have children. And it was interesting to see, you know, it's such a an awkward age for some of these kids. And it's so funny because some are so outgoing and some are so shy. But I got to tell you, it, it was a really, it was a great way to start the day. So anyway, that was my morning and it was quite good. And now I have a, uh, I have a great guest today. It's funny, my guest came to my attention with someone who listens to my show who helped is putting together a show in North Carolina, and he said, would you like to have your Michael Sweet on him? I guess it's Michael Sweet. How you doing, Michael? I'm good. How are you? We're traveling through Virginia, uh, going to a show. We're performing tonight. I'm performing tonight, and uh, everything's good. Now, little, what, little road tired, but other than that, beautiful day, and everything's great. Now, where are you performing tonight? We are uh, performing, I'm performing in Lynchburg, Virginia. And... <clears throat> What's the name of the venue, babe? Do you know? Phase two. Phase two. Okay. Phase two. Great. And, and I just just did four in a row. This is my fifth. Then I'm going home for uh, a week or so, going out and doing it again. So doing doing a number of acoustic shows throughout throughout the year. It's gonna be fun. Now that must be great because you know I mean you the background doing the acoustic show it must be great because you can sit there and you it's really just you you know it's really it, relating to your audience how do how do your longtime fans take to the acoustic shows you know they seem to really like it because it's a breath of fresh air it's it's something different I have a lot of people come through the lines uh, I go out afterwards and and meet everybody and talk to everyone and uh, they come to the lines and, and tell me that. Uh, it's a very, in a good way, a very unique way to hear the songs. And, you know, sometimes they weren't able to get the lyrics or hear the lyrics or understand the lyrics or what have you. And in an acoustic, intimate setting like that, they're able to. So it's really neat. I mean, it's a little more pressure for me in some ways because, you know, you're so under the microscope. They can hear every little crack in your voice and every little wrong note or, or what have you. Uh, it's just me and a guitar. Nothing to hide behind. No Mesa Boogies or Marshalls to hide behind. Now, you're, you're, you grew up in SoCal. When did you decide you wanted to play music? Did you start playing music as a kid? Or what made you go to this career that has been your life, life work? Well, I was drawn to music at, at a very early age. When I was two or three years old, I used to rock back and forth and sing songs, like, like hum melodies, as a kid. So it started really young. My parents uh, are musical and musician, so I was brought up around music. So I think I was just instantly drawn to it. It's, it's been a part of me, I think, from the time I was born. Uh, started getting interested in guitar, uh, becoming interested at the age of five. Got my first guitar. My dad started teaching me chords. And then I got really, really interested and decided that's what I wanted to do at the age of 12. No. And it's been, I mean, no looking back ever since. I'm 50 going to be 54 in a few weeks and you know this this is what i've been doing my my entire life now when did you find out you could sing well i joined my brother's band as a singer i played guitar started playing guitar before i started singing but i uh, auditioned for his band at the age of 12 and i knew before that that i could sing 
and my dad knew I could sing, but, you know, we didn't know, you know, what the future held, obviously. I, I was much younger at that point in time and hadn't developed my voice yet. But I could certainly sing and hold a note and belt out a song. And once I auditioned, Robert realized that, too, and I joined his band. And we started playing gigs, uh, believe it or not. When I was 12, he was 15. And uh, the rest is history. You know, I, and as I went along, I, I worked on my voice and developed my vibrato and uh, uh, high notes and, and, you know, being a stronger singer and whatnot. Uh, and that worked out for, for the good. Well, it's funny that you said at 12, because I just think cause I talked to these eighth graders today. I'm thinking that's probably around that age. It must have been, I mean, how did you t command the stage at 12? Because we're so young and we're, you know, I mean, you're probably very precocious. But, I mean, when you went on stage, I mean, how did you vocalize? You, you know, it just, it was something that came natural. And I'm, I'm a little bit more of a private person. I'm not... Uh, Mr. Life of the Party, you know, and um, you kind of have to have that personality. I'm able to somehow, when I step on stage, uh, take on that personality, you know, and be able to engage the crowd and uh, become a front man and, you know, uh, lead the band on stage and whatnot and throughout the show. So it just works out. But it's really not privately, it's not who I am. It's not my personality. I'm not, not one of those guys, you know, like you, you hear David Lee Roth do interviews and up and he's just always on 10 you know i'm i've got my private side where i'm just hanging out on the couch watching tv or walking my dog or what have you and i like to be uh you know be on zero sometimes i gotta tell you actually being an interviewer i've interviewed a lot of musicians and actors and comics and i always like when people aren't always tuned on 10 because it's just it's not as good as an interviewer because they're always bringing the energy and you're like all right we just want to talk Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've never really been like that. And sometimes I almost have to mentally prepare myself and I don't want to say force myself, but I guess that that could be applied. It almost forced myself to to be that person. You know, uh, it's just not my personality. Those people that walk into a party, and they're just, you know, you hear them a mile away everyone's drawn to them and they're the life of the party, you know, like, like a David Lee Roth or someone like that. I'm not that guy. So now, now when you started the band, well, originally the band was called, uh, rocks regime, right? It was, well, if you go back even further, when I joined my brother's band, it was called firestorm. And we changed the name eventually to rocks, R O X X. Then we added the regime and we were rocks regime for maybe two or three years. And then we became striper. Now, how did you decide what kind of music you were going to play? Did you guys listen to a heavier metal type? Or, I mean, you know, you're, you're young, you're, you know, you're hearing different types of music. You can play, go in so many different directions. How did you decide that was the music you wanted to play? Well, just the music that influenced us growing up. We listened to bands like uh, Early On, uh, Deep Purple, uh, David Bowie, uh, Alice Cooper, uh, and then we moved in. I moved into UFO and Scorpions, and um, oh gosh, you know. And then eventually got into heavier stuff like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, Van Halen. You know, so this is all the music that uh, we were listening to as kids, and it was influencing us as teenagers and uh, molding us as musicians. So uh, that just was a, it was a natural fit for us to do that that same style. Now, when did you decide to start bringing a, the Christian 
uh, part of it into that music, and because heavy metal, you know, is you don't you don't think of Christian, you know, you, when you hear it, you know, it's got the imagery. Right. How did whose idea was that? And were you all very devout religiously, or were you religious to somewhat, or how did that whole movement start? Well, I mean, we were uh, we all came to know God, came to know Christ uh, through Jimmy Swagger ministries and uh, my brother started watching them on tv and then the whole family started watching them and we all sat down and said said a prayer in front of the television and then went and found a church and got it got into a church so it was really interesting how that happened and that was really that was around the age of 11 and 12 right around that same period um and then uh, around the age of 14 15 is when I wasn't as interested in going to church, and I kind of fell out of that because I started playing. Rob and I started playing the club scene and going every weekend and playing Hollywood, Whiskey, Troubadour, Cazares, and I really kind of fell out of church and, and wasn't interested in going and, you know, fell away and, and started drinking and, and, and doing different types of drugs and marijuana and, you know, all that stuff. And um, I just decided at the age of 20... We had some friends who were coming around the rehearsal room sharing with us if we committed the band to God and gave it back to God and our lives back to God, that he would do incredible things. And we did that. It really uh, took root, and the seeds were planted, and we decided to, at that time period, uh, I was 20 years old, like I said, um, we decided to just devote everything to him, to God, and uh, that's right before we changed the name to Striper. Right. And we signed it signed a deal as Striper and 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 that's where it began. Now tell my listeners how you came up with the name Striper. I read about it. I read, you know, you it's from a, a verse. But how did you decide on on Striper and I mean, cuz the, the verse I believe it has stripes but not Striper. How did that name come up? Well, I mean, everything that we had back then before we were Striper was yellow and black. We were already wearing yellow and black stripes. Our guitars were yellow and black stripes. Uh, the walls in the rehearsal room were yellow and black stripes. So we were already the yellow and black attack. And, and that was actually part of our name, Rock's Regime. And when we were thinking about a new name, uh, trying to come up with a new name, we were taking lists and writing names down. It, we blurted out Striper. And, and, and we all kind of sat there for a while and, and thought about it. And then... Everyone agreed how perfect it was. And then we told the label. They agreed, yeah, that's perfect. And we ran with that. And then after we decided on the name is when we found the Bible scripture to go along with the name, which was Isaiah, which is Isaiah 53, 5. In some translations, it says, by his stripes we are healed. Now, how did you come up with the black and yellow? Was that just was that just something that you guys love that color, or it just I mean that's so cool to me because I mean I'm I'm the same age as you, so I remember all the different bands back then. But how did you? And I remember seeing you guys on MTV, and you remembered the black and yellow. But how did you come up with the black and yellow? Well, my brother was really more into the black and yellow thing. He he started way back. He uh, painted his drum kit yellow and black, and it just progressed from there. You know, um, one thing led to another, and before we knew it, the mic stands were yellow and black tape. The guitars were yellow and black, and then we started buying yellow and black clothing, white, black, and dyeing it. And everything became yellow and black. And, we, and then we became known for that. 
you know, for the yellow and black guys. And, um, and that just became part of who we, who we were and who we are. Uh, and you know, it's, I've, I talk about it in my book. It, it's, I think it's a really great thing and memorable and, and something that people certainly recognize us by and for, but I also think sometimes it's, it overshadows, uh, more important stuff like the message and the music. You know, when people when that's all people remember you by is the yellow and black, that's not a good thing. You know, you want them to remember the music and the message even even more so. How did how did your first record deal come about? And was it was it different because as I said, metal had a different, you know, scene of a sound then, like of the lyrics. How did it first come about? Were were music executives excited, saying, you know, this if this you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that are really gonna like this. How did that come up? Well, actually, we, we did a showcase for Enigma Records, and they came and, and saw us, and it was really loud. It was in a, a warehouse rehearsal room, and they loved it, you know, and they went away really excited. And we were talking on the phone for two or three days afterwards and, and talking about a deal, and, and we submitted artwork, and we submitted lyrics and liners and all that stuff, credits. And they called us back and said that... Uh, they didn't know, you know, that we were a Christian band. They didn't know that we were, our lyrics were Christian, and they had read the lyrics, and they were having second thoughts about signing us. So they wound up signing us. You know, we told them, you know, we've got a huge following, and people are going to love this, and blah, 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 blah. And they wound up taking a chance and signing us, although they were reluctant. And sure enough, it just kind of exploded and took off. Uh, regardless of the of the Christian uh, lyrics, and we knew that that would be the case. We knew we saw God was blessing the band, and, it, and miracles were happening. And you know, we knew it was going to take off. Now, what's it, I know you wrote a lot of the songs. What's it like going into the studio and seeing a song you've written start to take on life? And you know, you're a young guy. I mean, what is that like? What what goes through your mind? I mean, you had a straight a straight head on your shoulders because you weren't partying and all that. But what's it like when you're young and everything starts happening for you? Well, it's amazing. You, you There's nothing like being a musician and a writer and a producer and going to the studio and hearing everything take shape. And then even more so when it starts to take shape like you envisioned and as you heard it in your head before it was recorded. And, you know, that happens most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't, though. And that's that's a little bit of a bummer when you really feel strongly about a song and then it doesn't turn out quite like you had planned or not as good. Uh, it does happen on occasion, but I mean it's exciting to go in and record a song that you've written and hear it come to life and take shape, and then hear uh, other people's comments about how much it's blessed them or touched them and and how powerful it is or what have you. It's really great. It's a great feeling. Now, as your first album came out, how was the reaction to it? You had your fan base, but what was the, you know, other reactions to it? Because, you know, you're still in L.A., I'm guessing. What was it like? And how did the other bands react to you? Did some of the heavier metal partying bands feel different to you? Or did you already know a lot of those guys? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard many stories and, and heard comments personally ourselves, good and bad. I mean, there are a lot of bands, I think, that respected us and do respect us. And then there's the, those bands or people that didn't respect us or don't respect us now. And they, they sometimes view us as a gimmick band or a joke band or what have you. But, I mean, you, you can't deny what's been done 
with the band and you can't deny the fact that we're still doing it and we haven't changed our message we haven't changed who we are you know uh, many bands do they change lineups or they change their sound or they change their look or they change their their style or their message and we've we stayed pretty true to who we are musically and what we're called to do in terms of our message and what what can you say about that it really i mean it's it speaks for itself i really think that it does now what is it like when your album starts getting momentum and you're making videos what was the video process like because back then videos were huge i mean we don't that's the one thing i feel bad for the youth of today they don't really get to see the videos i mean we saw videos all the time and they were the right best videos and the quality was great and you know looking back at them now you go man i can't believe i was fascinated at that because it's, there's no hd or none of that stuff but what was like right. the video process for you guys were you like pumped and excited and did you have any input in the videos that you made oh yeah we had input in all the videos we made and i mean a lot of money was spent I look, that's one thing that makes me say ouch is you go back and you think about the videos and, you know, like Calling On You, for example, I think it cost 150000 closer to 200000 And then now we shoot videos for, you know, much lower budget, too low, I think. You know, now you're, you're very fortunate if you have $5,000 to shoot a video for. And you just, it's almost impossible to get it done uh, or something incredibly nice or great done for that amount of money so i do wish there was a happy medium but i think that we way overspent money back in the old days you know 150 and 200,000. i know on it always there for you we spent i want to say upwards of 350,000. wow had the helicopter and we shot where the spruce goose was stored and you know, that's just insanity i mean we could have you know spent a third of that and probably had just as just as great of a video um you know would have could have should have you look back on all those things you did that were stupid and silly, and hopefully you learn from your mistakes, and uh, you know you do better and bigger things. Now I'm sure it's changed through your career. We'll talk about that. But when when you were younger, and you know you guys were becoming you know a, a household name somewhat, where did you find your writing? What was your writing style? How did, did you sit there and sit down and say I'm going to write? And where would you pull from to write? And was it also when you did write, it was more spontaneous. What was your creative process? Yeah, my, my mind's always thinking about a song. So I would write anywhere and everywhere. Uh, at the supermarket, in the movie theater, uh, walking, taking a walk uh, in my studio. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it's not always in the studio. It's not always sitting down with a guitar. Sometimes it's humming a melody and do my phone. Uh, actually, a lot of times that's what it is. Uh, and then when I get home, I'll, I'll listen to the melody and then I'll write chords to that melody. And then there's the beginning of a song. So it's just really different. I always have something going through my head, some kind of a melody or a riff. Um, and it, it kind of drives me crazy sometimes. But, you know, it's I'm not your typical writer. I, I don't necessarily always do well, like sitting down in a room or with someone else and say, OK, let's write a song. Sometimes it's better for me to have the basic idea and then maybe complete it sitting down in a room with someone. But, uh, you know, I like to have the idea, which is in my mind all the time, 24-7. Now, when you were starting to tour back then, what was it like going from playing clubs? Like you said, you guys were playing on the strip. What, what was one of the first big tours you did? I know, did you, you open for... Feet. 
Van Halen or uh, Rat? I mean, what were some of the first big tours you did? What kind of uh, places were you playing? Well, I mean, we were really, really blessed to be able to headline our shows from the very beginning. So we did some uh, one-off shows with bands. Like we played with Anthrax and Raven. We played with Bon Jovi and Poison back in the day before we broke. But once we actually uh, signed the deal and started really taking off, uh, we were able to headline everything. And bands would open for us. Uh, and that, that was always the case. I mean, we toured with uh, Loudness and TNT in 87. They opened for us. We were headlining. We toured with White Lion in 88. They opened for us. You know, so we were always the headliner. And it was really cool how that worked out. Uh, but we played with many bands over the years. Uh, got us too many to list. Dio, Zebra, uh Oh my gosh, man! As I said, TNT, Loudness, White Lion. Um, oh my gosh, just it's on and on and on. <laughs> you know, we. Yeah. Hello. Michael. Hey, people, we have a little uh, snafu. You, you still there, buddy? Yeah, yeah I lost yeah. you for a second there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but many bands, too many bands to list, man. And uh, we've played with so many, but we've been always been very fortunate to be able to headline. It's been incredible. Now, when you headline, the crowd is coming to see you. And if it is a, more of a Christian crowd, how did they take to the other bands that opened for you? Were they Did they know that they're going to hear something different, or did they expect something Similar to your genre. Well, see, it's, it's actually not more of a Christian crowd. Uh, our, our crowds are probably a third Christian, and if that, and two-thirds, uh, you know, secular, not Christian. So uh, we, we play, like, big rock festivals, you know, like M3 and Rocklahoma and Sweden Rock Fest, and, you know, there's no... Uh, and that's always been our calling, to go out into the world and, and perform for them, and it's... It's really great. I mean, we've always been, for the most part, accepted and well-received, and people enjoy what we do, and they like the music, they like hearing it and seeing it, so it works out. Now, what was it like when you guys got a Grammy nomination? I mean, that's like, as, as a, you know, as you being a singer-songwriter and a musician, that must be one of the highest uh, honors back then. I mean, what was that like? Were you all excited, and then did someone tell you? Did your management tell you, or how'd you find out? Yeah, it's... It's amazing. I mean, anytime you, you know, receive uh, something like that, whether it's a nomination or an actual win, you know, by something as prestigious as that, I mean, it's amazing. You're humbled, you're excited, you're blessed, you know, all of the above. And uh, always, always mind-blowing to get that sort of recognition. But at the same time, that's not everything. And it's not even... Uh, it's usually not even anything, if that makes any sense. Uh, I mean, we stay focused on, in other words, if we never got a nomination or never got any type of award, we'd still feel that, you know, we have achieved everything that we've wanted to achieve. You know, uh, we, we don't have any regrets and think, oh, man, we, we should have won this and we could have won that. I mean, we just don't think that way. 
Now, to hell with the devil went platinum after like three months and it sold like too close to two million copies. When you were just a kid at 12 picking up a guitar, did you ever sit there and think, man, there's a day I'm going to sit here and I'm going to sell, our band's going to sell two million records. And, you know, you must sit there and go, wow. I mean, it's when you when you sell that many to a record becomes that big. It must be hard to follow up with something like that because you must feel a little, you know, where you're excited, you must be a little intimidated too, because we always want to try to do a little better. It is, and, and you know that's certainly part of who I am. Um, I'm definitely OCD and ADHD and all that stuff. And because of those, the combination of those two things and my personality, I always want to do better, and I strive to do better. And and um, and because of being, you know, my faith and my Christianity. I, Biblically, you know what the Bible teaches me and says. I want to do better as as a man, as as a as a man of faith. So it's important, uh, but at the same time, you know, it it can also be a bit of a hindrance. Like for example, within God We Trust, we did try to, uh, you know, follow in the footsteps of To Hell with the Devil, and I felt like it was just basically a, car, a carbon copy of To Hell with the Devil. And that's when uh, you know it can become stale and and not fresh and artistic. You know, so you you got to be real cautious cautious of that as a musician. You always want to do something fresh and new, and still remain true to your uh, your style and who you are. But do something new and fresh where people hear it and get excited about it. Now, when you said you felt like it was a carbon copy, when something that that like that happens. Did, and it's not as acclaimed, and you're not totally happy with it. Did you get you depressed a little bit? I mean, did you sit there and go, "Man, we should have done this. I wish we could have done that." Or, I mean, how does that happen? Where it's an album where you're you thought it was a carbon copy, somewhat. Did you do you guys? Did you not have say, or did you have to do what the label was saying because they wanted to keep the sales rolling? No, we had say. We we definitely got a little pressure from the label to you know basically follow-up to help the devil but we had say because we co-produced uh, in god we trust and uh we were just as much a part of it as the producer michael lloyd and the engineer uh so <clears throat> it was definitely we take blame for anything that might have happened on that album uh, you know i think it's a really good album it's got some good songs and if people really like it it's, it's many fans favorite album in god we trust but it just to me when I listen to it, it's it's definitely overproduced and a little too slick for my ears, and it seems to lack a little bit of the energy that I wanted it to have. It's a little bit more of that, uh, just going through the motions, and I don't want to say lifeless, but just you know, it doesn't quite do it for me. But who am I? You know, I'm just a band member. The fans seem to love it. Now then, and for Against the Law, you guys changed your image somewhat. How did that come about? Did you just want to keep growing as musicians, or what happened? No, we kind of went down a different path and uh, started rebelling against the church and uh, statements we had read over the years, a, a lot of Christians attacking us and things that were said about us. And uh, we just kind of hardened our hearts and you know, let that door open, and, and things came in, and you know, we started drinking and it just kind of went down a different path. That wasn't good. wasn't healthy for the band. It was a learning experience. taught us a lot today, but uh, it definitely wasn't something we should have been doing. 
uh, more on the hypoc hypocritical side for sure, because we go up on stage and tell people about God, throw out Bibles, and then go to the bar afterwards with some of the fans there. So that's not a good situation. You know, that's not something I want to do. That's not the person I want to be. Uh, so we went through that phase, learned a lot from it, changed, turned turned around, thank God. And I wound up leaving in 1992 and pursuing a solo career. Um, and I did that for a while. And and then Stripe reformed, uh, technically, I guess, in 03. We did our, our first official tour again. And then we made our first album in 05. So we've been going ever since, man. Longer than the first time around and stronger, I believe, as well. Now, when you went on a solo career, what is that like? Someone, I mean, you're already writing the songs, but as you said, you know, now when you did the acoustic show, it's more stripped down. But when you go out then, your you, your music identity has been Striper, and you've been playing right. with so long with them, and now it's almost like you have to re not recreate yourself because your fans are going to come, they're going to follow you. But when you want to get right. new fans, you know, how do you? do that how do you sit there and how do you find people to play with you i mean what was your basis when you went solo what what was in your mind for your first album after you left oh uh i've always written the songs you know i it, that's really nothing new it's never been a forceful thing um, at all. It's just been something that I was that guy when Oz and Rob were at work who was sitting in the garage with the guitar for 12 hours writing songs. And, you know, it's just who I am. I'm, a, I'm one of those guys that's just constantly writing. You know, when I get a call to do an album, I, we just did a Sweet Lynch album or I did a solo album. And, you know, I'm going to be working on a Striper album coming up. When it's time to do it, I'll go down in my studio and I'll write a song every day. Uh, for 11 days or 12 days until there's 11 or 12 songs. And, you know, I can, I can write songs. And, and God's really blessed me with that uh, for whatever reason. And I say that humbly, completely. Uh, it's, just, it's just a big part of who I am. And because of that, I've written most of the songs for Striper. And, you know, it's always funny to hear the comments from some fans, like, oh, it's just another solo album. Or, oh, it sounds like just another solo album. Well... You know, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that other than, you know, it, it's always been that way. You know, the first album, I wrote all the material. The, the second album, I wrote 95% of the material. The third album, I wrote 90. I, and, and again, it's, I, don't, I don't say that as an egotistical creep or anything. It's just, <laughs> it, I don't think fans know that. You know, I think fans have this this illusion that uh, they, they believe that it, it was all four of us sitting down writing every song together. It, it's never, it's never been like that. Right. Now, so, I don't know. Now, when you, uh, what's that? So my solo albums and Striper albums, there's, there's not a lot of difference other than maybe one album might be a little heavier and one might be a little lighter, but you're going to always hear those similarities. Like, I have people say to me, one-sided war, hey, this song sounds like a Striper song. Or when we do a Striper song, some people say, that sounds like it could have been a solo song. Well, they, they could be, you know? 
Now, when you played on your solo albums, what's it like playing with different musicians for the fact that you've played, you played with Striper for a long time. You guys have, you have that trust. You're a band. When you go and you play with new musicians, it is your, it is your material. So, you know, you, and you know, it may sound, you know, Striper or a solo, but how do you react when you're first in a, in a gig with them? Like you're playing with them and you know where you're, other people in Striper would go, you know, you know where your brother would drum or this. What was it like when you're in studio with people that you don't have that comfort because you, you had so much comfort with Striper? Well, I mean, I, I try to work with musicians that I know are going to bring that comfort and, and where I don't need to second guess what they're doing. You know, I just did an album with George Lynch and uh, Sweet and Lynch too. And, I worked with Brian Tishy and James Lomenzo, and I got to produce it and co-write it. And there's a reason why I hired Brian Tishy and James Lomenzo, because I knew that they would kill it. And they would just come in and absolutely nail everything, and they did. You know, And if I play with them live, it'll be like playing with Striper, with the Striper guys, because I, you know, they're just pro players who are amazing, and I don't have to think twice about that at all. So it's really great playing with other players. It's it's nice. It's refreshing. It brings in some different flavors and adds a lot to it and takes it to different places. Now, as a musician, you know, and as a solo artist, you eventually you moved to Massachusetts and you ended up joining Boston. How did that all come about? And were you a fan of Boston when you were younger? Huge, huge fan. Uh, the first Boston album really changed my life musically. In which way? I was thirteen. I was thirteen when I heard it, and I, just, I was just blown away by the writing, the performance, the production, everything. As was most of the world, you know, everyone that heard it. Um, and then later on in life, in two thousand and seven, be, tragically because Brad Delp uh, passed, I was asked to come and be one of many singers. Uh, to perform what was going to be their last show. And it wound up going so well uh, um, that they asked me to join the band and and go tour with them. They were going to continue on. So we did. I, I joined the band. And I toured with them in 08, Sticks in Boston. And I, I, I was a member of Boston, you know, for four, four years. And really pretty incredible. The uh, reason why I love Boston is I really wanted to focus 100% on the priority, which is Striper, of course. Right. Now, I mean, what is that like, though, the feeling, as you said that? And, and you're right. Everyone, I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't like the Boston first album. It still holds up. When you hear it, every song you hear on the radio, they still, you go, wow, it seems like it just came out. What is that like, though? That must be a little bit pressureful. And all of a sudden, you know, a person, a band you love say, hey, you want to come sing with us? I mean, how do you get prepared for that? Well, I mean, it was it was nerve wracking, obviously, because you, you got to go in and, um, you know, take the place of, or try to, you know, one of the best singers ever, Brad. And, you know, you just, I tried not to think about that stuff. I tried to just go do it and do what I do. I was allowed to do that. And it was, because of that, it, it became comfortable and natural. And the fans accepted it and loved it. And that tour was really more about a celebration of Brad's life than anything. And I think that's why it worked and why it was so successful. Now, what was it like for the fans because they've listened to Brad? Did you 
you know, did people come up to you after and say, oh, man, you're doing a great job? Or was there some people who were, you know, because there's always people who are jerky. I mean, what was the, what was the, the fans' acceptance to you? Because everyone knows those songs so well. It was amazing. I mean, that's what really blew my mind is they, they accepted everyone in the band. It, was, it wasn't just myself, but also Tommy DiCarlo, who was uh, the second singer. He and I split everything up. And it worked, and, and everyone was just there to celebrate and, and have a good time, and, uh, and that's exactly what everybody did. So I never read or heard any negative feedback myself, and I was very surprised by that. Occasionally I'd read something on you know, YouTube or <clears throat> what have you from some person saying it, it doesn't sound like Boston or, you know, uh, I miss Brad or, you know, things like that, that which is to be expected. Uh, but not much. I mean, most everyone uh, was commenting in a very positive way, and it was really incredible. Now, how? what were the steps to Striper re getting back together? Well, we toured in 03, and that was the first tour, and it was it just called a celebration tour. We were going out to celebrate the history of Striper. There were no plans of uh, reforming. And staying together, just a one-off. After the tour, we wound up uh, parting ways with Tim Gaines, and um, for a number of reasons, and he uh, went his separate way, and we went our separate ways, and we wound up bringing in a bass player by the name of Tracy Ferry, and we continued on, and we kept touring and doing one-off shows, and uh, we eventually made an album. Uh, called Reborn, and released that. Tracy played on that, and uh, was also a member at the time. And then we did another album called Murder by Pride, and and he was still a member in the band. And in '09 is when we went out. We were going to do a, a combination set where Tim would play half of the set, old stuff, and then Tracy would come out and play the other half, new stuff, new material. And that didn't work out for whatever reason. Uh, Tracy wound up uh, wanting to do other things, and, and we brought Tim back in, and he wound up touring with us, and we've been going ever since, from 2009 to uh, 2017, now from, and making albums, music, touring, everything. I was going to say, with, with the, from the early music to now, how do you think your writing style has changed? Have you evolved and, you know, feel like you're writing now as someone who's older and wiser, or how has that happened? I mean, do you, do you feel that your writings, what your message is? Is it, is it different or what, where your thoughts come from? I think so. I think the lyrics have definitely grown. Music has grown too. But, you know, my lyrics in the past used to be very, uh, how shall I say, shallow. You know, they weren't deep. They were definitely more on the shallow side. And um, they were still, I guess good and people enjoyed them and, and people were touched by the lyrics but they just weren't real deep and, and these days I get a little deeper with the lyrics uh, I seek out and search out scriptures and try to draw and pull from other areas of my mind <clears throat> to write lyrics and it seems to be working uh, but I still want to keep it on a level where people can relate sometimes if you go too deep musically or lyrically people can't relate to it and you lose the listener really fast. Uh, I, I always try to keep everyone engaged with 
catchy melodies and somewhat simplistic lyrics so they don't forget it. It goes in, they understand it, and it works. Now, what was it like when you guys, after that delay, that layoff, when you first hit the stage again? Was was the energy there? Did you sit there and say, man, this is, this is my life's work. I'm supposed to be with these guys. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's something about when we take time away from each other and then we come back together, there's always something real special about it. So we all felt that and realized that. And, you know, that's that's why we're still going, why we're still out playing and performing and, and making albums. We're getting ready to record a new album in October, and we're going to go tour next year. Um, you know, we're still doing it. It's 30, you're talking about 34 years. Next year will be 35 years because uh, we, we technically, officially formed in 83. So next year will be 35 years, and that's that's a long time. Now it's what cracks me up is so many bands I talk to that were you know played metal. They always end up being huge in Japan. You guys ended up being your albums were very popular in Japan. How did that happen? And, and what is it that the Japanese love about metal? It's a weird connection. I always see you know bands. These the guys from my show the metal bands say it's just it's craziness over there. They just love. <clears throat> 80s metal they love guitar players and they love singers the high vocal style of singing and the guitar uh melodic shredding they love so there's something about that style that japan just goes crazy for and striper had that we had the vocals we had the guitar playing and harmony and Whenever we went there, we went there the first time in 85. They went absolutely insane. Uh, we made a live video, and we were playing to big crowds, and we were just in awe because we were kids. You know, I was first time I went to Japan, that was in 1985. I was uh, 22 years old. So it's, it, it's just crazy. What's, it was it, quite an experience. What is the biggest crowd you've played for would you say i mean i know you do the festivals i mean and how do you even absorb that when the crowd is so big i mean what would you say is the biggest crowd you've played for uh probably cornerstone festival i think it was like thirty-four thousand, something like that so and uh that was a reunion a one-off striper we played in 2000 uh or 2001 and it was insane absolutely insane a huge huge crowd now, what happens uh, with now with your shows? I bet you have a lot of fans who have been fans for a long time, and they're coming back with now their kids. What's that like to sit there and see that your music is still reveling and that it's been passed down from generations? Like, does that happen to you a lot where people come up with their kids? Yeah, it does. It's amazing. Um, when you see their kid, they bring their kids, and, and their kids are wearing striper T-shirts, and actually, you know, you can you can see it in their eyes that they're sincerely excited about being at the show or meeting us or talking to us or whatever, and that's just that's mind blowing. That's really cool. Uh, so I'm seeing that second generation and uh, and sometimes even third generation. You know, they're bringing their their young their kids, young kids to the show uh, sometimes, and it's just it's wild. It's very cool. 
Now, when you played in Japan and also now when you play, do ever, do people ever show up wearing black and yellow? I mean, do you have those old school troopers who are like, we're showing up? I mean, what is, do you have the fans show up like that? Do they dress like that? Oh, yeah. No, we get people coming in black and yellow. It's usually when we're playing a big festival or something like that. You'll see more of that. And sometimes at striper shows, you'll see it on occasion. Uh, but people do do it, and, and that's the cool thing about the black and yellow is it, it it's engaging. It's something that people can, you know, put on and, and come to and feel a part of it, come to the show and feel more a part of it. Uh, and it's just very cool. It's kind of like a, a baseball team fan, you know, going to the to the baseball game with their jersey on. You know, I was thinking about yeah, it's just it's one of those things, and I think Pittsburgh Steelers because they're black and yellow. They just you know, that's just you, exactly you think like that. Um, now with your shows, now what made you decide to do some solo dates? I mean, was that something that you uh, have wanted to do for a while, or I know you're concentrating on strike, but what made you want to do that? And and how is that when you? I mean, we talked about it in the beginning, but w- what is the process? What's the difference of preparation between? that show and a striper show for you personally well i mean lately i've been doing a, a solo acoustic show so it's just very simple i go i go out with my guitar and play and sing and there's not a big stage alarm system and bare bones and there's something to be said for that and the audience is too it's it's more uh you know personable and uh it, it, it's just it's just there's something really cool about it yeah yeah my wife she travels with me she's driving right now uh, but you know it's cool and and i like it it's 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 the complete opposite of a striper show now it's and, and, I, and I need that i need that sometimes because it's it's just kind of a, a breath of fresh air and it, and it allows me to breathe a little bit i was going to say and it also must be you know you get to you know when you're on a bus or you're with the, with the rest of the band you probably don't have the downtime i mean this must be good because you and your wife are getting to drive around and you know Check out the different parts of the country. Exactly. And it's really cool. I mean, we haven't had on this trip. It's been five in a row. And we've been literally just, we haven't had time to do anything. Uh, but, yeah, we, we do on occasion get those opportunities to just go out and have a day off or two and see some stuff. And uh, We're going over to uh, South America in August in Puerto Rico. We'll get to lay on the beach for a couple of days. You know, things like that. That's really nice. And it's, it, it, it allows us to recharge and kind of clear our heads for a while. So is that, are you going to perform in South America and Puerto Rico? Yes. Okay. Is that the solo or with Striper? Just solo. Striper goes there too. But this time around, it's just solo. This year, this year what we've been doing is taking time off. We'll go and, and tour with Striper extensively, and then we'll take a year off and only do a few one-off dates. Now, the reason why we do that, we have found that it's better when we go back out again because we don't oversaturate ourselves, you know? Sometimes a lot of bands do that, and the numbers start to go down because people have seen the band too much. Now, how do you choose the places that you will play with Striper or the places you play solo? Are there, I mean, do you, and are there certain places you look forward to playing that you haven't played a lot but you love to get back? Oh, gosh, there's so many. We always love House of Blues venues. You know, those kinds of clubs are just really classy, and they're not run down and dingy clubs, and sound system, the production's always fantastic, lights and sound and crew. 
so yeah, there's places we look forward to playing for sure. There's also places we don't look forward to playing that uh, I'll leave nameless. You know that we get booked at, and it's one of those things where you you go where you can go. You know, you go to the places that want you and that can pay you the money you need uh, to be able to pay the bills and not have a deficit that's so high that you can't tour. So it gets tricky sometimes trying to figure all that stuff out. But we, we tend to do it, and we're able to go out and still tour. Now, for you, in your eyes, and I, uh, how do you think the music industry has changed since when you guys signed? And as you said in the beginning, you'd make a $150,000 video. Of course, because technology, you know, $5,000 is like eighty-five, ninety-five thousand these days. You can shoot on a, you can almost make a video on a iPhone. But how do you see it? How has the music industry changed in your eyes? And have you, do you think it's getting, it's going to be getting better or getting worse? Or how do you feel? I think in some ways, better but in most ways worse because the future is streaming you know not sales and right now anyway streaming doesn't pay the artist what they used to get paid <coughs> so you know the profits and the royalties that come in are, are much less and that makes it much more difficult for the musician to continue doing what they love doing and make a living at it. So when we get to the point where CDs are, you know, basically obsolete and, you know, which that day is coming very soon, um, that's pretty scary because then it's going to be strictly based on streaming uh, royalties and like I said, they just don't pay very well. You know, you can see a hundred thousand streams and, and make dollars. You know, just not much. So, versus if you sell a hundred thousand CDs, you're going to see some decent money, and you're going to be able to pay your bills and and make a living doing it. So, a lot of musicians work second jobs or third jobs, or go a step further. They can't even do music anymore. It is. Because they got to go get a, they got to go get a real job, and they can't do what they what they're put here on earth to do. Right now, now through your years, have you did you guys always have the same uh, designer for your album covers? Because I always loved album covers, or did that change? Mm. It's always changed. We had a different one for every single Striper album. Uh, now for the for the more recent Striper albums, it's been the same guy for the Sweet and Lynch album. Stripers No More Hell to Pay, Stripers Fallen. It's a guy named Stannis Decker. And um, he's French, and he's hired by the label Frontiers Records often uh, when they when the budget allows, because he's, he's more pricey. His quality of work is really great. It's a cut above, you know, what you normally see. Uh, but he's the guy that's been doing our artwork lately, and we love it. He's doing the new Sweet Lynch album. I'm sure he'll be doing the next Striper album as well. Now, how did you uh, end up hooking up with George Lynch? Um, I was contacted by the label to put together a super group and sing. And they wanted me to work with John Levin, who is the guitar player for Don Dawkins Dawkins right now. And I politely suggested to uh, the label owner, Serafino, I said, well, why don't we just get get George, you know? 
if you want that striper and doc and merge and and he got real excited about that and said you know him and i said yeah and i reached out to george and asked and george said yeah let's do it and that was it see that's awesome really really simple yeah now with your solo shows how do you come up with your set list and what can what can the people expect to hear is it going to be it's going to be mixed it's going to be some striper it's going to be some solo and how do you decide what you're going to play and does it change each night or do you keep it pretty much strictly to uh, no, once we get a set list, we pretty much keep it. Uh, when I do solo acoustic, I'll change it up a little bit. I have the freedom to do that, and uh, you know, it's a little easier to do that. When it's striper, it's not so easy because we rehearse, we learn the songs, we work everything out, and everything's very rehearsed. And I don't want to say choreographed, but just you know, very. It, it's very in place and in set and planned out. Uh, so it's a lot more difficult to just say, hey, let's do this song tonight, and let's cut that song, and let's do this and do that. We don't really do that. A lot of bands do do that. We're just not one of those bands. We're, we're a band that has to rehearse and learn stuff and have it worked out. Now, on your solo gigs, do you do encores? I do. Now, what I songs do, do people you... are wanting it? I, I do, and I will. Now, what do you have? Certain go-to encore songs, or there's sometimes if if you play. I mean, how does that go? From you know, I'm sure when you're with Striper, you have the certain go-to songs as your encore. But how do you choose what song you'll do an encore for on uh with with your solo gig? You know, a lot of times it's just kind of feeling it out. I take requests at my solo gigs. And if people shout out this, I'll try it. Or shout out that, I'll try it. Uh, sometimes the encores are, are it's set. It's on the set list. Sometimes it's different. I'm, I, I'm not feeling it. I'll come out and do something different. With Striper, a lot of times, like on the last tour, we had five or six songs. And there was an app people could, during the show, download and vote for this their encore song. And that's awesome. And, and then... The votes all came in, and we would tally the votes, and then we would go out and play the encore song that got the most votes. Cool. Well, you know what? Uh, you're, so you have gigs coming up. You're in Lynchburg, but uh, when this airs, June 14th, you're in Hickory, North Carolina. Yes. And then you go to the next day to Georgia. Now, is that is that a long ride between Hickory and Georgia? And, and how did your body still put up with it? You know, I don't know if it's a long ride, but I've been feeling it on this five... Um, show run it's we get up we go to bed at, at 2 and 3 a.m and we get up at 8 39 a.m and we drive uh, 250 or 300 miles and you know I'm, I, you start feeling it it's definitely definitely it takes its toll but we get through it somehow always we always do now, I also saw in September you'll be playing at the Whiskey A Go Go. What's it like to go back to where you know you first really started jamming? Is it a sort of a homecoming feeling? I and mean, what's that like to play that venue now? Yeah, it always is. Whenever we go to places like that, it always feels good, and, and it's going back to our roots, and it, it's always a great feeling, man. Uh, and there's just something special about it for sure. Well, Mike, I want, to, I want to thank you. I'm glad we got in touch. You know, it's uh, the guy who's booking you in North Carolina contacted me because he had found my show because he had heard my episode with Tony Harnell, who you had played with. And, oh, yeah, And course. so he ended up hitting up me, and, and so we coordinated it. But I'm glad you got to come on. Now, your website is michaelsweet.com, and that gives all your tour information, right? That's exactly right, com, And 
Also, Twitter, Michael Sweet. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook as well. And now your the Striper website is? Uh, Striper website is just striper.com. Okay. Well, great. So I want to thank you for coming on. People, go check out Michael. Follow him on Twitter. You're pretty active on Twitter, right? I'm very active on Twitter and Facebook. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you like the social media aspect of it? I mean, you, you, your career has been from there is no social media to probably handing out flyers to now you can just blow emails out, stuff like that. How do you, how do you think social media has helped in your careers, and has it hurt you at all? Hold on one second. Um, I, I think that it, it, it's helped a lot in many ways, but I think that if you can somehow balance all the negative, the negative side of it and block that out, which is really almost impossible to do, you know, because you go on, everyone feels because they can go online and type something that they can say whatever they want to say. And they, and they do that. And that's the real downside of social media. I, I think it just, it's terrible, some of the stuff that I read and some of the stuff that people say. It it's is. quite mind-boggling. It really is. And I don't know what makes people feel that they have the right to say things like they say. Right. Just because they have an opinion. <laughs> it's crazy. It, it is crazy. But, you know, that's just, you gotta you got to know how to take the good with the bad. And if you don't or can't, you're going to be in for a rough ride, for sure. Exactly. So, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. People, follow him. Go check him out. Listen to his music. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember, it was, God, it was five years ago this past weekend when I was in the hospital. That's with the crazy. I, uh, wow. Uh, people, you know, I wrote the cookbook. Come buy it. Go to the website. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. So please buy it. I had a second lease on life, and you can eat healthy and be healthy. So people, follow Michael. Follow Stripel. Follow me, at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.